This podcast contains graphic content and discusses themes of violence. This particular episode features domestic violence and child abuse. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Lana Clarkson was a beautiful blonde actress with the world at her fingertips. Her talent was more than evident, and her beauty was undeniable. Beginning her acting career in the early 1980s, Lana had minor roles in big-time films from Scarface to Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and starred in sword and sorcery films such as Amazon Women on the Moon and Barbarian Queen. She even had television roles in Three's Company, The A-Team, and Who's the Boss? But Lana was more than just a pretty face. When fear peaked during the AIDS crisis of the 1980s, Lana volunteered at Project Angel Food, which was a service to deliver meals to those disabled from HIV or AIDS. Her publicist also confirmed she was working on stand-up comedy in the hopes she could shed the image of a sexy warrior and become the lead role in comedies. In 2001, Lana performed as Dr. Sarah Bellum a mind-bender turned villain who advocates for the homeless by sheltering them via virtual reality in the television show Black Scorpion. This would be her last role as an actress. Not long after Black Scorpion, Lana began working as the VIP hostess at the House of Blues in West Hollywood to make some extra money and market herself to any profile patrons who entered and may be looking for talent. And in 2003, at 40 years old, to say she caught someone's eye, well, that may be an understatement. I'm Jen Hansen, and you are listening to The Living. The night of February 3rd, 2003, was the night Lana met former producer Phil Spector. Standing at 5'8 in his three-inch Cuban heels, Phil gazed up at Lana, who stood a whopping six feet tall. Unimpressed by his bizarre outfit, heels, and wig, Lana initially refused Phil entry to the VIP section until her management team insisted she give him preferential treatment. And of Phil Spector? Perhaps nothing could better describe him than Cynthia McFadden and Roxana Sherwood's reporting for ABC News. In an article written about some of Phil's revealed thoughts prior to his arrest, McFadden and Sherwood say of Specter, quote, From head to toe, Phil Specter is a decidedly odd-looking man, from his ever, ever evolving hair to his three-inch Cuban heels. He is also an undisputed musical genius, end quote. A musical genius indeed, who died in prison where he was serving time for Lana's murder. It's no secret that Harvey Phillips Specter was, by all accounts, a talented man. He formed his first band, The Teddy Bears, in 1954 with high school friends, and their hit song, To Know Him Is To Love Him, a spin on the epitaph of his father's grave, hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Phil was just 19 years old, and at the time, he caught the eye of Lester Sill, 
who brought Phil on to apprentice with famed producers Lieber and Stoller. These guys were responsible for launching the career of Elvis. Working with Lieber and Stoller, Phil co-wrote Benny King's smash hit Spanish Harlem. And eventually, after proving his talent and finesse as a songwriter and producer, he and Lester Sill began their own record company, Phil Les Records, where they recorded the likes of The Crystals, Connie Francis, and The Righteous Brothers. All of this at only 21 years old. Phil's early life was not all chart-topping hits and gold records, though. At the age of nine, his father took the family car five miles away from their home and died by suicide when he connected a tube to the exhaust, asphyxiating himself through the car window. The suicide was hard on the entire Spectre family, but especially hard on Phil's sister, who ended up institutionalized after her father's death. From then on, the relationship he had with her was tumultuous at best. She took charge of the teddy bears when they were emerging without Phil's explicit permission and worked hard to edge out the other members. She reasoned with Phil that it would mean more money for him, but the reality was that she wanted more money for herself. His mother was worse. She put the blame on Phil for his father's death, going so far, according to his high school friends, as to chase him around the house with a knife, screaming that his father's death was his fault. New York MAG reporter Bill Wyman writes of Mick Brown's biography of Phil entitled Tearing Down the Wall of Sound, that Phil's mother, in addition to the blame she bestowed on Phil for the death of his father, was wary of the girls in Phil's life from an early age. She would call every 15 minutes if he were at a female classmate's house, literally yelling with rage for him to return home. It's evident the two closest women in Phil's life were the most toxic to him, and the future interactions and relationships he would go on to cultivate with the women around him would prove the dysfunction he learned from his family, including why he killed Lana Clarkson. In 1963, Phil discovered the Darling Sisters, a group that consisted of sisters Veronica and Estelle Bennett and their cousin Nedra Talley. Smitten with their talent and armed with an incredible knowledge of R&B music, he knew he could bolster their fame. He signed them to Phil Les Records and changed their name to the Ronettes. This was the same year he married his first wife, Annette Merar who said of her husband at the time, quote, Phil seemed to thrive on destroying his opponent, even if it was his wife, end quote. She also later said, quote, he thought of everyone he worked with as his puppet. Phil and Annette's wedding was spontaneous and didn't allow for Annette's family to fly from L.A. to New York for the ceremony. The night ended in tears. Annette recalled that everything seemed to deteriorate as soon as the wedding ended. Other than that, not much is known of Phil's first marriage. It's possible they had a son named Damien together, but there are no reliable sources to confirm if Damien is Phil's child or a son she had in a later marriage. And as of 2008, 
just months before the second trial for Lana Clarkson's death, Annette was reported missing, and no follow-up information is out there to be found. What we do know, however, is that the reason their marriage ended is because of the romance he started with Veronica Bennett. During rehearsal sessions for the Ronettes, for the songs Phil penned on their behalf, he and front woman Veronica fell in love. Their one-on-one time where she sang the words he crafted felt like a movie storyline to Ronnie, as she was known. Of their sessions, she said, quote, We had this romance between my singing and him teaching me. It was the best feeling in the world. End quote. The more time the pair spent together with the music between them, the deeper their connection grew. And in 1968, the two married. While Ronnie experienced bliss as a bride on her wedding day, her mother who signed their marriage certificate told Ronnie she felt as if she had just signed her daughter's death certificate. And she may not have been entirely too far from the truth. The night of the wedding, Ronnie was awoken to the sound of construction. Bars on the windows, barbed wire fences surrounding the property, and a 10-foot electrical fence went up. Ronnie's life had just been decided for her. Their marriage came at a time when Phil had withdrawn from studio life. His most recent venture, signing Ike and Tina Turner, and putting out the single River Deep Mountain High, failed to go higher on the charts than 88, which Phil considered a great failure. And there's a lot to be said about Phil's career. A lot of artists who were thrust into undeniable fame at the hands of his creative production. A lot of passion and talent that went into his writing, recording, and producing sessions for the likes of the Beatles and the Ramones. But there was also an obsessive need for control and a violent tendency to threaten his clients with a gun when they weren't playing to his standard. Phil's talent was no secret, but for as talented as Phil Spector was, the madness that lived in him was equally as great, if not greater. In an ABC News interview, Phil said, quote, It's all about control. It's what everybody hates about me. In other words, you're never going to be successful if people don't hate you. And that's what everybody hates about me. If you come down to what people really hate about Phil Spector, it's that he controls everything. And that's too fucking bad. End quote. Not allowed to wear shoes in the house for fear she would leave him, Phil kept Ronnie hostage in their home. He quit writing for the Ronettes and prevented her from singing, which was her greatest passion. As an added emotionally and mentally abusive tactic, Phil purchased a coffin with a glass lid that he kept in their basement, where he told both Ronnie and her mother that if she ever tried to leave him, he would kill her and keep her body in it on display as if she were Snow White. He even had a life-size replica of himself made an actual doll that he forced her to sit with when he left the house. And on the rare occasion she was allowed to leave on her own, 
Phil required the doll to ride in the car with her as her passenger. Although it may have seemed like this behavior came to a head out of nowhere, Phil's depressive state at the seeming failure of River Deep Mountain High was the catalyst for the beginning of his self-medication. He began drinking heavily and abusing prescription drugs. He took a medication for schizophrenia, though he claimed not to be schizophrenic. But somehow, in the midst of his depressive state, he and Ronnie adopted son Dante Phillips Spectre in the 70s. The following year, suspicious that Ronnie was making plans to leave, Phil surprised her on Christmas Day with two more adopted sons, twin five-year-old boys Lewis and Gary. Of the surprise adoption, Ronnie told reporters in 2018, quote, No one wants live children as a surprise. The more kids I got, the further I was in that mansion, end quote. After the twins came along, Ronnie's mother moved into their 33-bedroom mansion to help care for the three children the pair now had. In 1974, Ronnie and her mother spent three days studying the guards Phil had hired to keep Ronnie in the house, and they learned as much as they could about the entrance of the home before making a barefoot run for it. Successfully escaping, Phil Spector's second wife filed for a divorce and forfeit the custody of her children to prevent Phil from going through with plans to hire a hitman to kill her as he had threatened to do. Ronnie knew it would be painful to give up her children, but she knew how serious Phil's threats were. The kids might be able to rekindle their relationship with her when they got older, but there'd be no chance of that if she was dead. With Ronnie no longer held prisoner, Phil began to descend further into madness. Gary and Lewis, in respective autobiographies on growing up with Phil as their dad, have recounted the abuse they suffered at his hands. Phil installed locks on the outside of their bedroom doors, only allowing them out to fulfill their basic needs. He would bring women over to the mansion and bring the boys out to provide what he called a learning experience. They would be blindfolded and handcuffed on many occasions and forced to perform simulated sexual acts on Phil's girlfriends. On March 31, 1974, Phil suffered a near-fatal car wreck that threw him from the windshield of his Rolls-Royce and totaled the car. He would have been declared dead at the scene had it not been for a police officer who threw the pool of blood continuing to seep out of Phil's mangled body, detected the faintest of pulse, and rushed him to the hospital. The accident caused incredible injuries, requiring extensive surgeries and resulting in almost 700 stitches to his face and the back of his head. Tablet Mag reported that the impact from the windshield was so severe that Phil was finding shards of glass under his skin years after the accident that he compulsively picked at. Even as a teenager, Phil was obsessed with his hair, constantly brushing it from side to side, fixating on how it looked. But this went on well into his 20s despite his success, and it only got worse after the car accident. The physical scarring was severe enough to leave Phil feeling even more insecure about his appearance. This was the dawn of the wigs that we've all come to think of when we think of Phil Spector. 
Tablet Mag describes it best with this quote. His hair having been burnt to a crisp, he comforted himself with a series of wigs that grew more audacious the darker his mood got. From a standard brown mop top to a mess of golden tresses a la Bo Peep. End quote. The amount of eccentric Phil had been up to that point was about to be put to shame. His appreciation for guns turned into an obsession. He began collecting as many firearms as he had items of clothing. Friends and collaborators were called to the New York Times days in the studio with Phil, where he would change outfits up to four times per day, accessorizing each one with a matching handgun. By all accounts of his friends and family, for as bizarre and worrisome as his behavior already was and continued to be, this accident is what truly changed the rest of Phil Spector's life. And without knowing it at the time, Lana Clarkson's as well. Coming out of his recluse, Phil managed to produce successful albums for vastly different genres. Leonard Cohen, The Beatles, and The Ramones were all part of his roster through the end of the 70s and into the 80s. Although he seemed to be the decade's comeback kid, his attitude toward the music industry was simply summed up to one point. It didn't deserve him. Each session spent in the studio, regardless of who it was with, was crowded with drugs and booze. Phil, along with every friend he brought along for the ride, and his bodyguards were all armed, and none of them, least of all Phil, were afraid to pull out a gun and flaunt it carelessly. And it only got worse from there. In 1982, Phil's girlfriend Janice Zavala gave birth to twins Nicole and Philip Jr., which Phil touts as a happy time in his life. But in 1993, Philip Jr. passed away on Christmas Day after losing his fight with leukemia. Phil told reporter and biographer Mick Brown that this is when he truly lost his grip on reality. He began taking mass amounts of antidepressants and couldn't stand being alone even more so than before. He ordered his bodyguards to lock guests in and even forced Leonard Cohen and his wife to stay the night after a dinner party. His drinking increased, he was diagnosed as bipolar, and his public sightings were catastrophic. His induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame showed the real Phil Spector, the one that hid behind the famed music producer that churned out hits and reinvented the musicians who stepped foot into his studios. He showed the world the incoherent, sloppy, unstable man he really was, confusing the event with a presidential inauguration. His bodyguards carried him off stage mid-speech, but the public damage was done. Everyone saw who Phil Spector really was. Throughout the 90s, although he tried to remain relevant, he couldn't seem to keep a steady gig going. Collaborations with Celine Dion and British pop band Star Sailor were argumentative and disagreeable. Phil was a washed-up has-been who couldn't stay sober and couldn't be flexible. In a written statement to Vanity Fair, Phil said, quote, You don't tell Shakespeare what plays to write or how to write them. You don't tell Mozart what operas to write or how to write them. 
and you certainly don't tell Phil Spector what songs to write or how to write them or what records to produce or how to produce them. End quote. Star Sailor's song Silence is Easy, which landed on the UK Top 10 charts, would be Phil Spector's last project before Lana's death. At least, his last successful one. The last one worth noting. For a while after that, Phil's life looked normal to the public eye. He attended basketball games, concerts, and hosted a yearly party at a bowling alley that featured the hit music he was responsible for creating. But it didn't take long before the darker version of Phil, the one with the demons he claimed he fought inside of him, came back out and took control. And those demons were worse than they'd ever been. Phil wasn't shy about brandishing his handgun when someone disagreed with or offended him. A woman who made a joke about his wig, a fellow record producer from Tokyo who he hurtled racist remarks at, and a girlfriend who refused to accompany him to his hotel room one evening. They all would be much luckier than Lana Clarkson was soon to be. In 2003, after breaking her hands and wrists in 26 places and needing pins to put some pieces back together, Lana Clarkson was an out-of-work actress putting off bills and selling pin-up style photos of herself online to make ends meet. A hostess at the House of Blues was not her first job choice, or maybe even her last, but she knew she could meet some high-profile people who could put her on the right path. Her talent agent was sourcing a comedy reel she had put together, and they were both confident that she would be able to land a major leading role in no time. On the evening of February 2nd, Lana was the working hostess at the VIP section of the House of Blues in West Hollywood. Armed with the power of choosing who was important enough to be let in, she had an immediate distaste for the short man wearing heels and sunglasses with a curly blonde wig that sat four inches above his forehead. A blonde woman Lana estimated to be at least 30 years his junior was by his side. But before she could completely dismiss him, her manager discreetly informed her that he was THE Phil Spector, and that any treatment less than superb was not to be accepted for this especially VIP patron. Lana wasn't his first choice. He asked another staff member to follow him home for a nightcap, but she declined. Lana, however, was heading out at the end of her shift when Phil decided to give it a go. She at first only agreed to walk him to his car since he was headed the same way, but after a bit of coaxing, he wore her down and she agreed to ride with him to his castle in Alhambra. It's important to note that for a few years up to this point, Phil Spector had been sober. The psychiatrist he had been seeing crafted an expert blend of medications to keep him sane and coherent. Alcohol, they warned, would be detrimental to the cocktail of pills he needed to take. Phil was ready for the change. He was trying to rekindle a relationship with his estranged sons, Gary and Lewis, and worked hard to maintain his relationship with daughter, Nicole. That night, before heading to House of Blues... Phil and his date had dinner at Dan Tana's, where he was a regular guest. When he ordered a drink, something light and sweet, the bartender didn't believe the server's order and actually approached Phil to ask him about the drink himself. When the order was confirmed, 
he served Phil a daiquiri that he sipped for two hours. And despite that being the first alcoholic beverage Phil had consumed in quite some time, he seemed to still be level-headed. But things changed at House of Blues. Whether it was the atmosphere, where he watched a set from Rob Halford of Primus, or the alcohol mixing with his meds. Phil enjoyed himself by ordering a bottle of champagne and sipping a glass of rum from a bottle of Bacardi 757. And then he sipped another. And then another. And before anyone knew it, he was helping the leggy, blonde, Amazonian-like Lana Clarkson into the back of his brand new Mercedes. No one but Phil Spector and Lana Clarkson know exactly what took place in the early twilight hours of February 3rd, 2003, in Phil's 33-bedroom, Spanish-style castle in Alhambra, California. But only one of them is alive to talk about it. We know what time the pair arrived, but not whether they indulged in any nightcaps, what they talked about, or what they did. What we do know is that around 5 a.m., Phil's driver, Adriano D'Souza, heard a gunshot coming from inside while he was out front with the Mercedes. And that Phil emerged moments later and uttered the now infamous quote, I think I killed somebody. D'Souza also testified that Phil had blood on his hands when he ran out of the castle. He was also carrying a gun. And I need you to put a pin in that, because we'll come back to it later. Adriano, confused and seeking clarification, asked Phil what happened. His response? A shrug. Adriano peered around Phil into the doorway of the home and saw Lana's legs reaching out of a chair next to the front door. Stepping around Phil to take a closer look, he saw Lana's body slump down with blood on her face. Suddenly panicked and afraid, he ran in the opposite direction of the house and got back into the Mercedes, fearful for his own life. He testified in court in 2007 that he knew he needed to call 911, but wouldn't be able to provide the address of the home. So he called Phil's assistant, Michelle Blaine, who didn't answer. He did, however, remember the sign out front that stated the address and drove down the front driveway to get it. 911 was then called, and Adriano told dispatch that he thought his boss had killed someone. Police were on the scene within minutes. Phil was put in handcuffs, but complained loudly both to investigators and later to reporters that he had been, quote, hogtied by them. His moods also swung rapidly, going between confusion as to why they were there, denial that he killed her, and telling them it was an accident that he'd shot her, and then finally trying to say she shot herself by accident when she, quote, kissed the gun. He also told police, quote, I'm sorry this happened. I don't know how it happened. It scared the shit out of me, end quote. Lana Clarkson was killed by a single bullet wound. When her body was found and examined, it was found that she had been shot with the barrel of the gun two inches, yes, two inches behind her teeth. It's important to understand what this looked like. I physically took a measuring tape and put it two inches into my mouth. 
it reached the top of my throat and I gagged. A measuring tape, however, is flat, and I used mine as a sort of tongue depressor with the flat side down. A gun, however, like the 38 caliber Colt Cobra revolver that was used to kill Lana, has a 1.4 inch round barrel, which is approximately the size of a soda bottle cap. It was also a snub nose gun, which meant if she had placed it two inches behind her teeth, she had nearly the whole damn chamber in her mouth. Now, I'm no pathologist, and I certainly have no experience or expertise in crime scene forensics, but I feel pretty confident in saying that if someone were planning to shoot themselves through the mouth with a gun, they might not try to choke themselves with it at the same time. It's also worth noting that Lana's tongue was bruised, indicating it had been forcefully shoved into her mouth. Forensic pathologist Louis Pena testified at Phil's 2007 trial, quote, The bruise is very unique and is consistent with blunt force trauma. Something struck the tongue, end quote. Dr. Pena also testified that the bruising could not have been caused by the gunshot, as the discoloration and seeming age of the bruise indicated it occurred prior to the gunshot. The autopsy findings presented in the 2007 trial were shocking. Lana had, quote, significant bruises on her arm and wrist, consistent with a struggle. The bullet that entered her body through her mouth severed her spine, causing instant death. The recoil kickback from the shot also blew out her top front teeth. Dr. Lynn Harold an L.A. County criminalist testified that Lana's body had been moved prior to police arriving on the scene. Her blood was found on the revolver that was used to kill her, but the blood evidence showed it was smeared, as if it was placed under her leg after the shooting, which is where the police found it. Remember the gun Phil was seen with when he ran out of the house shortly after Adriano heard the shot? Well, it's time to take that pin out, because it was the same gun found near Lana's leg. I'm not sure how a deceased person goes from holding a gun in their hands after they shot themselves to gently placing it underneath their leg on the floor, but someone had to do it. Did Phil place it thereafter? He's never said, and will likely never know. But I think we can all infer that's what happened. Dr. Harold noted that it was obvious Lana's body had been moved because, quote, blood doesn't flow uphill, and it also doesn't fly around corners, end quote. It was also noted that based on the bloodstains on the chair Lana was found in, her head had moved from one side to the other. But this was not the most compelling blood evidence. Dr. Harold presented to jurors a magnified image of microscopic blood spatter on the sleeve of the jacket Phil had been wearing that night. Her analysis showed that these type of small mist-like spots could only be present if Phil had been within three to four feet of Lana when she was shot. The most damning bit of this evidence is that the spatter was found on the backside of his sleeve 
which means his arm had to be raised and pointed toward Lana's mouth for the blood to make contact with that area of his jacket. Swabs of DNA were taken from both Phil and Lana's bodies, including one of Lana's nipples and Phil's scrotum. Both body parts contained DNA from each of them. But it was never confirmed if they had engaged in sexual activity, be it consensual or not. According to court transcripts on Find Law, the prosecution called multiple witnesses who testified about Phil's inability to handle rejection from them and reacted with pulling out a gun. Phil's former girlfriend, Dorothy Melvin, said that in 1993, Phil hit her on the head with a gun twice in the same evening, once after he accused her of stealing things from his house and once after she refused to take her clothes off when he wanted to have sex. Stephanie Jennings testified that she entered into a long-distance relationship with Phil in 1994. In 1995, he became furious that she wouldn't leave her hotel room to join him in his suite and blocked her door to prevent her from leaving, waving a gun in her face. Devra Robital spoke of a party she organized for Phil in the 70s at his home. When she attempted to leave in the early morning hours, Phil came up behind her and put the barrel of a shotgun to her temple, telling her that if she left, he'd blow her brains out. Diane Ogden testified that on two occasions while trying to leave at the end of a party at his home, he threatened her with a gun to stay. The second of the two events ended with him trying to rape her at gunpoint, but he was unsuccessful in getting an erection. Melissa Gross Venner told the jury that she was trying to leave Phil's home in 1993 after a date. They walked to his front door together where he told her to wait. Melissa sat down in a chair by the front door, waiting for Phil to return with keys to unlock the interior locks. When he returned, he had a handgun and said, quote, If you try to leave, I'm going to kill you. End quote. This instance is especially telling as Lana's purse was hung over her shoulder when she was found, with a strap caught on the arm of the chair she was found in. Was Lana trying to leave a situation she was uncomfortable in when Phil shot her? Did his fear of rejection and his anger at the thought of it finally push him to the edge? While that may seem like the obvious answer, not everyone chooses to see Occam's razor, the theory that the simplest explanation is usually the right one, as the solution here. The defense called psychologist Richard Saden to the stand to testify regarding Lana's mental health at the time of her death. He did agree that impulsive suicide is uncommon, especially considering she had only known Phil Spector for a few hours and was at his home, essentially the home of a stranger, when she quote-unquote killed herself. In looking at Lana's recent medical records, Saden was able to compile a list of risk factors that were part of Lana's life which could have caused her to die by suicide. Career problems drug and alcohol addiction, although Lana had stopped using drugs months prior to that point in time, and medical problems such as her recent wrist injuries and chronic migraines, which she was being seen for. 
Richard Seden, however, did also admit he had not taken the time to interview anyone close to Lana to determine if his assessment of her mental health may have been incorrect. The first trial ended with a hung jury of 10 to 2 in favor of convicting Phil of the murder of Lana. A second trial took place in 2008 with much of the same evidence entered and nearly all of the same witnesses providing testimony. This time around, Phil Spector was convicted of the second-degree murder of Lana Clarkson. We've seen a lot of examples of Phil's psychology already, especially regarding his fear of rejection, likely stemming from the early loss of his father, his mother's abusive tendencies, and the loss of his son. But perhaps one of the most evident psychological effects is his clear and obvious Napoleon complex. As a child, Phil was shorter than kids his age, was underweight, and had asthma and diabetes. It's no wonder that a taste of success and the power that came with it would be a breeding ground for the ego Phil exuded. Phil's habits of waving guns around, wearing tall shoes, and sporting large wigs all point directly to his insecurity regarding his stature and are all signs of a superiority complex. The interesting thing about Phil's superiority complex, though, is that it masks and often mirrors an inferiority complex. Psychologist Dr. Aquilus M. Gordon writes of these two complexes, quote, Like the superiority complex, where the expression of superiority is understood to be a facade masking the deeper felt, sometimes unconscious sense of inferiority, The inferiority complex is also a facade that masks a deeper felt, sometimes unconscious, sense of superiority. How else could a sense of inferiority emerge except from a deep-down sense that one really is or should be superior? End quote. If that last sentence doesn't sum up Phil Spector in a nutshell, I don't know what does. We saw earlier how Phil found River Deep Mountain High with Ike and Tina Turner a failure by only hitting 88 on the charts. But in reality, no one else spoke of the song that way. Phil's imposed failure aligns with Dr. Gordon's theory on the inferiority complex by saying that at first glance, we may view someone's sense of failure as their own humility. But the truth is that it is quite self-serving and reflects a higher level of narcissism than anything else. There is also a chance Phil Spector could be considered to have the dark triad personality. This consists of three personality types that triangulate to create this trait. Psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. It's no secret Phil has narcissistic tendencies. Of narcissism, there are two diagnosable types, grandiose and vulnerable. When we stop to think about Phil's love of guns, fast cars, his 33-bedroom castle of a home, his outlandish outfits and wigs, and his insistence that all of his work must top the charts to be successful, we see a glaringly obvious grandiose personality type. In fact, to be diagnosable, one must display aggression, dominance, and over-exaggerate that they are the most important person in the room. All signs point to Phil Spector. When it comes to psychopathy, 
most people jump to a serial killer image with an effect that lacks empathy and emotion. This, however, is not the case. The clinical definition of psychopathy is more subtle and most often less violent. While there can be a lack of concern for others, like Phil's gun waving to stop guests from leaving his home, had he truly felt no real emotion or concern for these guests, he very well may have shot and killed them all. The truth of this particular matter is that he cared so much that he couldn't bear the thought of not having their company and needed them to stay. This isn't to say that Phil Spector doesn't have any psychopathic traits in general, though. Keep in mind, I'm not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I am a student majoring in forensic psychology, and I've done a lot of research for this episode. Psychology Today lists the following traits as needing to be present to clinically diagnose psychopathy. Superficial charm. Check. Need for stimulation and proneness to boredom. Check. Lack or remorse or guilt. Check. Impulsivity. Check. Failure to accept responsibility for one's actions. Check and poor behavioral controls. Double, triple, check. But it is important to note that someone can exhibit multiple traits of psychopathy without qualifying as a tried-and-true psychopath. Machiavellianism is the third of the three personality types when it comes to the dark triad. Machiavellian traits include cold, calculating planning to get what someone wants, often including carefully constructed lies and manipulation. We do see some of this within Phil's romantic relationships, such as when he spontaneously changed wedding plans with first wife Annette so her family couldn't attend, or when he threatened Ronnie with the glass coffin if she ever left. Dr. Dale Hartley writes of Machiavellians, quote, Essentially, they're amoral. They use other people as stepping stones to reach their goals. From a Machiavellian's perspective, if we allow ourselves to be used, we probably deserve it. End quote. The combination of narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism combining to create the dark triad in an individual creates a person who acts and behaves solely to get what they want, whether it's at the expense of someone else or not. And that sums up Phil Spector. Can his mental illnesses be used as blame for Lana Clarkson's death? They certainly shouldn't be used as an excuse. And what's as frustrating as the fact that despite his entire life of hurting others, he still managed to end up in a place without the mental health help he so desperately needed to take someone's life is that when you Google Lana Clarkson's name, everything is about Phil his death from COVID-19 earlier this year, how much his Alhambra mansion sold for, and the musical genius he was. I couldn't so much as find an obituary for Lana. For as bright as her future was, for as lively as she had once been, the sad outcome is all about Phil. Just as he always wanted it to be.
Lana was full of life, determined to make a comeback and contribute to the world in a way Phil Spector never could. With a heart of gold that was full of care and compassion for those around her. Although her life was cut short by a small man with an ill mind, she left a mark on the world that will never be forgotten, least of all by her mother, Donna. In an interview after Lana's death, Donna admitted she was in denial, keeping Lana's cell phone activated for two years after she died. Speaking of Lana, she says, quote, I tell her I miss her and how proud I am of her. And I love her. I ask her to stay close. End quote. And that, my friends, is the case of Lana Clarkson's murder at the hands of disgraced Phil Spector. I hope you've enjoyed this third episode of The Living Podcast. I appreciate all of your patience with me as I try to manage my time between a full-time job, studying for my bachelor's in forensic psychology, and maintaining a personal life at the same time. The biggest shout-out goes to my husband, Peter, who was a huge support to myself and this podcast. I'd also like to note that during this episode, I mentioned Phil watched a set of Rob Halford and said he was with Primus, but he is actually from Judas Priest. I also need to extend an apology because I know I kind of tripped all over myself in this episode. I was a little bit nervous. I had a drink. Apparently, I can't handle my booze, but here we are. (laughs) If you made it this far, extra kudos to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on whatever platform you like to listen. If you're feeling extra generous, a rating and review would be so very appreciated. I can't even tell you. I also have pins and stickers to send if you leave me a five-star review and send me a screenshot of it. You can send it to me on social media, on Instagram at The Living Podcast, or at my Facebook page, The Living Podcast. For those of you who have already done so, I haven't forgotten about you. I promise they will be in the mail soon. You will be getting them. I'd love to know your thoughts on the trials, evidence, and why the world can't seem to view Phil Spector as the murderer he is. If you haven't noticed, that's a sore spot for me, and I hope it is for all of you who have listened to this as well. Let's not forget, Lana Clarkson was an amazing, talented actress, and Phil Spector is a murderer. If you have any cases you'd like to hear me cover with the emphasis on criminal and forensic psychology that The Living Podcast is all about, please email your submissions to contact at theliving-podcast.com and your episode will be featured. I can't wait to bring you a brand new episode in the future, but until then, remember. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about.